Welcome to True Crime on Easy Street. My name is Katie Givens, and I'm still not a lawyer. I'm Kelly Turner. I'm not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright, and I am a mediocre journalist. And we're glad y'all are back. Uh, You get to hear part three of our three-part series on the Reverend Willie Maxwell uh, from the book Furious Hours by Casey Sepp, New York Times bestseller. This is the exciting conclusion. You made me wait for a conclusion. I knew you were going to say it, and I was I was still, there was that impending, oh, say it, say it, say it. Anticipation. That's the word I was looking for. Oh, man. Scott. Yes. Conclude us, please. I will conclude us as best I can. So we have, we've talked about the Reverend Willie Maxwell, and we have talked about his attorney, and then the attorney who defended the person who murdered him in front of 300 people at a funeral in Alexander City in 1977. So before we tell the my favorite part of this story as a mediocre journalist, let's set the table and tell you some other things that were going on in 1977. Apple Computer was incorporated in 1977 on January the 3rd of that year. And uh, in June, the first Apple II series computers went on sale. What? Yes. The first ever test flight of the space shuttle took place in 1977, and it never even flew on its own. You guys remember when we were kids... Kelly, I'm talking to you. When there were little toys of a, a 747 with a space shuttle attached to the back of it, that was the first ever test flight of the space shuttle, and it never left the back of the 747. They just attached it to see if it blew into a zillion pieces when the wind got it at 500 miles an hour. So they did that uh, for the first time in February of 77. 77 was the first time an op- optical fiber was ever used to carry live telephone traffic. And of course, that's commonplace today, but the first ever AT&T experiments with fiber optic cable took place in that year. Chuck E. Cheese opened its first ever location in San Jose, California in May. I love Chuck E. Cheese. I have never been to a Chuck E. Cheese in my life. Is there one within 100 miles of here? When I was young, there used to be one in Rome. Really? Right here in Georgia. Rome, Georgia. Okay, Rome, Georgia is 30 minutes away from where we are in Cherokee County. Yes, and I loved going. All right. Uh, In June of 77, Elvis Presley, sadly, held his last ever live concert at the Market Square Arena in Indianapolis. Sadly, he would die on October, I'm sorry, August the 16th of 77. Um, but he, in was all, a, he was a beautiful man. He was a pretty good looking dude there <laughs> until the end anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it, also in August, uh, the son of Sam Killer, David Berkowitz, was captured in New York City. Uh, the Kelly, you always want me to mention music, so here you go. Uh, the Saturday Night Live, I mean, sorry, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack was released in November oh. of 1977 in, in anticipation of the movie's release in December of that year. And that made John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John and the Bee Gees household names by the time the movie even hit the screens. And lastly, and I thought this was sad and appropriate of a mention, on Christmas Day in 1977, Charlie Chaplin died at age 86, I'm sorry, 88, at his home in Switzerland from a Very funny. Very funny guy. So... As we have discussed, all of the things that have led up to where we get to 1977 and the trial takes place, one of the, the most famous author in Alabama history, Nell Harper Lee, found out about this case. And she found it very interesting. It happened not too far from her home. And she decided that she was going to try and write a book about it in the vein of In Cold Blood by her childhood friend, Truman Capote. They had known each other as children in Monroeville. And she had helped 
she'd been very instrumental in the writing of In Cold Blood back in the late 50s when the Clutter family was murdered in a small town in Kansas. She went uh, to Newcomb, Kansas with Truman Capote and did a lot of the research for him and, and <clears throat> sorry, took a lot of the notes uh, at interviews and she was sort of the, there are accounts in the third part of this book that tell the fact that Truman Capote was a weird character. He was a strange person. He spoke in a weird voice with a lisp and he wasn't really very sociable with these common people. He was great when he was in New York City hanging out with, with movie stars and other authors and famous people. That just was the, the clique that he found himself uh, swimming in when he was in New York City. But when he went out to rural Kansas, he needed someone with an Alabama accent, almost like he knew in advance that his childhood friend, Nell, who's also, at that point, she had moved to New York City and was also a writer. Although she was working uh, odd jobs, she was a ticket agent at an airline for a while. She hadn't really found a hook to hang her hat on as a writer yet. But Truman saw the talent that she had. And so when he went out to Kansas, he took her with him and they came back and he ended up selling his story to the New Yorker as a multi-part series. And it already had a book deal with Random House within a couple of weeks of them returning from their uh, research trip out to Kansas. And it was six years before Capote wrote what turned out to be In Cold Blood. And still a lot of people think is one of the really was the very first true crime novel. And you'd have to look up that definition to, and you can figure out what that definition is, but it was, it was a story about something that actually happened, but it was written as a novel. And the, the people who were involved in the clutter family and the two men who committed the murders were sort of, and Capote even to some extent wove himself into the story because he spent a lot of time in the jail cell with these, uh, uh, with these two accused murderers, and they were eventually convicted and hanged. And he didn't write the book; he didn't finish the book until this whole thing played out. And it was two or three years after the murders happened, and I think the summer of '58 before uh, they were executed. And it took him three more years to write the book, and and then it was a very famous book, except for Helter Skelter by Vincent uh, Bugliosi. In Cold Blood is the second most, the second best-selling true crime novel in American literature. Interesting fact. I did not know that either. I honestly can't believe I've never read it. Uh, they're both. I've read them both, and they're both fantastic. I've read In Cold Blood two or three times. It's 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 gripping. So, which is your favorite? Uh, between the two, probably In Cold Blood. Really? Yes. Uh, Why? And Helter Skelter tells the story of the Charles Manson murders mm-hmm. that took place uh, in California, and it's written by Bugliosi, who was the district attorney who convicted or who uh, who prosecuted the case against Manson and and Squeaky Fromm and and uh, those other ladies that whose names escape me right now. But all I can think of is Sadie. Is that one of them? Sexy Sadie. Is that they, it? I don't yeah. think that's her actual. So you've name. read it as well. I've not read it, but I've seen uh, all kinds of documentaries and mm-hmm. and right. The Manson family is pretty fascinating to me. But can you, can you explain specifically why In Cold Blood was your favorite, Scott? I just felt like, and, and I've learned some, some things about the book that I didn't know by reading uh, Furious Hours. It was, just a, it was a very compelling story because they spent time, Capote and Nell Lee, and that's, everybody called her Nell. Everybody who knew her called her Nell Lee. But the world knows her as the world Harper knows her Lee. As Harper Lee. She just felt like the word Nell would be confusing to people. She said a lot of people look at it and think it's Nellie, 
And so mm-hmm. I'm just going to drop it off. I'm just going to be Harper Lee on the cover of this book if it ever gets printed. And then she confused everyone and made them think she was a man. Exactly. We've all read this book, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened. Um, what did you ask me? Oh, in Cold Blood, it's better because they spent time, they went in the Clutter's home, and the first part of the book, and it's, it's morbid, and it's macabre, and I, I don't know that I ever want to read it again, but it tells a very explicit tale of Capote and Lee put together exactly how the murders took place in the Clutter home that night. And it was just a... The two men broke in because they had heard a rumor when they were in jail that there was a secret safe in Mr. Clutter's home somewhere. He was a wealthy farmer, uh, fairly wealthy for rural Kansas anyway. And so they had heard that there was a secret safe and they broke in and they spent most of the night torturing the Clutter family to try to find out where the hidden safe was. There wasn't one. And they didn't wear masks and they had been seen. And so uh, Mr. and Mrs. Clutter... Uh, everybody was murdered with a shotgun. Mr. and Mrs. Clutter and their two children, uh, I think maybe a 15-year-old son and a 12 or 13-year-old daughter. It was a horrible, grisly scene. You can read it for yourself if you like, but they did a really good job of piecing it all back together. And over the time that they spent in Newcomb, Kansas, they got to know the townspeople and they gained their trust and they interviewed some of the local people. And they, until, I think it was maybe a few weeks, maybe six weeks before the two uh, murderers were caught, maybe in California. And the town was in an uproar. The town was scared to death. They left their lights on at night. They locked their doors and no one in Kansas had ever done that before. So they really spent enough time in, in this small town to interview enough of the people. One of the ladies, I remember this vaguely, was she was the local postmistress and she knew everybody in town. And so once they got on her good side, they really could get information from everyone in town. And so they started to build this. And Nell Lee is doing a lot of this research. She's writing down a lot of this stuff. She's typing up a ton of notes that Capote takes back to New York and eventually turns into cold blood. So it's, it's, if you like true crime, I mean, my, my back's tingling right now. If you like Mm -hmm. true crime, it's a really fascinating read. Uh, And I've read it more recently than I read Helter Skelter. So maybe Helter Skelter is just as good, but still vivid memories that make my back tingle when I think about some of the passages. So she was book. able to help, help him with this because she was able to, she's more of a people person than, yes. than Truman Capote. And, was. you know, spoke the language in a way that Capote did not. Mm-hmm. And so here, fast forward to 17 years later, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird came out in 60, I think 60 and won the Pulitzer in 61. It's maybe 63 or 64 before In Cold Blood comes out. And Nell Lee's done nothing in between. Everybody's waiting for the next big book to come along. Everybody asks her at cocktail parties and and bars and restaurants and Broadway shows and things. And I don't know exactly what her motivation was, but it it seems to me like she thought, you know what? I know how to do this. I I did it once before. I, I basically wrote half of In Cold Blood. Let's, this case sounds extremely interesting and extremely complex, and it sounds like something that I have the skills to tackle. Let me move to Alexander City and Lake Martin and live there for nine months and dig this up and see what's there. Well, and she was just really interested in it, too, and I think that is yeah. easier as a, you know, a literary person to write about something you're just and really you, interested you in. She definitely speaks the language of these, these folks yeah. as well. I mean, her yeah, being from her, Alabama. This is her part of the world. And you, you, can't, you can't write about something that you're not passionate about. It's impo- mm-hmm. You'll never get to the, to the end of it. And as we're going to find out, spoiler, 
Nell Lee never got to the end of this book either because we would have all read it by now. I was about to say, that we know one. of. Right. Yeah, that we know of. But obviously she was passionate about it and felt like she could do it justice. And so she moved down to that area. And one of the first things she did was uh, she paid a thousand, she, she made herself known to the folks in town and she reached out to the lady who was the, uh, she reached out to Tom Radney, mm-hmm. was one of the first people yeah. that she talked to. She interviewed Robert Burns and some of the members of the Burns family. So she got off to a good start and she even paid $1,000 for a copy of the transcript of the trial after it was all over with. And the lady who was the court transcriptionist still has that, or when the book was printed, uh, because Casey Sepp interviewed this woman who was in advanced years at that point, uh, five years ago, four years ago. But she still has her copy of the canceled check that Harper Lee wrote her for her typed transcript of the trial because it was already in shorthand. And so the lady said, look, it's going to take me some time to type this up for you in longhand. And Harper Lee said, whatever you need, I'll, I'll pay you for it. And it was $1,000 and she still has a copy of the canceled check. So, <laughs> Oh yeah, it's in the book, right? Yes, yeah. there's a picture of it in I the book. In the, in the photo it. section of the book, there's a picture of it. And, and I say that to tell you this, it was obvious that the passion that Harper Lee, I'm going to probably end up saying Harper Lee for the rest of the show just because that's what she's most familiar uh, as to me. Obviously, she had a lot of passion for this because she forked over $1,000 for for the transcript. Well, she wasn't hurting for money. That's true. She had, uh, even back in 63, she had sold half a million copies of To Kill a Mockingbird. And on Christmas Day of 1962, the movie version came out and was nominated for eight Oscars and won three in April of 63. So I'm guessing she got a nice little chunk of change for the movie rights to that. And yeah, if, if she never worked again... And I don't want to say Harper Lee never worked again, but she was never printed again. Almost never printed again in her lifetime. Uh, but yeah, she was doing fine. And she didn't live lavishly. I mean, she didn't. No. She, she wasn't. Not at all. There's a, there's a funny story about that that maybe I'll get to later about the apartment that she lived in in New York City for over a decade. Well, let me just go ahead and tell you. It turns out that a young John Hall, I'm sorry, Daryl Hall and John Oates, before they became Hall and Oates, they lived in the same apartment building uh, with Harper Lee and had no idea who she was or that she was a novelist of any kind. And it was years later that somebody pieced it all together and said, Hey, what was Harper Lee like? And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Had no idea that they lived in the apartment complex with Harper Lee. Did she just go by nail and no one put uh, it together? Or? I, I think maybe so. And, you know, just very quiet and kept to herself. And it was a very small apartment. Like well, Katie I think, said, I think she went, by Har- well, I don't know if she went by Harper, but, there was a picture of the apartment complex, like the the door buzz, buzzer. Yeah, and it said like H Lee. Yep. Oh. So like her name was on there the whole time, and just no one. No one. Yeah. She was known by by her name a lot more than she was known by her appearance, and she preferred it that way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she said at one point that the uh, the most important thing when it comes to being a writer is pen, paper, and privacy. Mm-hmm. Oh, so okay. she didn't care anything about any of that. So she's trying to piece together this, uh, this story. And pretty quickly, I think, and you guys jump in here because we all read all three parts of this book. It seems to me like it wasn't very long before she realized that there was a lot more conjecture about how all of this happened than there was facts that she could report because we've all talked about the voodoo and the suspicion that even, even if Reverend Maxwell just let these stories 
these rumors swirl around him. There's no evidence at all ever that he had anything to do with voodoo, right? No, no. There's there's no evidence of him even ever going to New Orleans. You know that was a big yeah. The seventh son and of the seventh with son. the seven sisters yeah. and um, there's no evidence of that. But 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 he seemed was, like one of those people who was more than willing to let these things uh, uh, swarm and form an aura around him, and it made him more mysterious to the other people in town. And you know it kept kept him off his back. So while he's trying to steal your life and your insurance money. If you think it's voodoo that I get off of these things, hey, more power to you. Keep spreading those rumors. It's fine with me. But it, when when Harper Lee got there and started to dig down into this, and she got books about voodooism and, and the occult and uh, uh, is it roots? Is that how you say that word? Like when you put a hex on someone, it's a root? No idea. Yeah. All right. Let's pretend know. that it is. Somebody can let us know in the notes if we got it wrong. But she studied up on this and you know, just the evidence was never there and she never felt like it was something that, that she could form into a version of the, or a portion of the narrative of the story other than to just mention it maybe the way that Sep did and explain it in some length as, as why it was something that was believable to people who lived in this part of the world at that time. Because there were communities or people in the community who believed in voodooism and, and you know, uh, what did we say earlier? Uh, washed off their uh, doorstep every morning mm-hmm. to keep the ghosts out or the... Covered their house with blood. Wasn't yeah. that something too? I mean, there's, you know... There's, there's a certain type of paint that you paint with. Oh, yeah. yeah we talked yeah, about yeah, that yeah. in the first mm-hmm. episode that somebody painted over it. and you Shake it, out your, your pillows right? in the morning and uh, you paint with a certain type of what's called haint paint. All right, and that keeps the bad people. Isn't there? I, I don't know if it's a it's a worldwide word for ghost, but in the South, it's another word for ghost, like a haunt, but a haint, haint paint. Okay, yeah. well, there was one uh, there was one episode in the book where she is interviewing local people there in the area where this all happened, and one of Willie Maxwell's friends said to Harper Lee, "If the Reverend were still alive, no one in this town would talk to you." I believe that. People were yeah. terrified. They were terrified of him. They all thought they were going to be next. I mean, what was one of those quotes? We don't know who else he's got life insurance on. Well, and I mean, he might not even have it. He might stick it in your pocket later in his own handwriting. I mean, yeah. <laughs> after the fact. Uh, and, and one of the people who was a, a big supporter of Harper Lee in all of these endeavors to try and write this book was, of course, Tom Radney, because I don't want to say that he was, uh, uh, he was attention-seeking about it, but I, I kind of feel like that he must have had some suspicion that if she ever wrote this book and it, they had taken to calling this book, the title, the Reverend was the, was mm-hmm. the title that's mentioned several times in the last portion of the book. Uh, but Radney, you have to figure is going to factor into the story somehow, because think about all the similarities between the book that we think Harper Lee might've been trying to write about what happened in Alexander city in 1977 and the plot lines in to kill a mockingbird. You've got a, You've got a, a, a black defendant, maybe or maybe not justify, justifiably accused. You've got uh, a small town. You've got a lot of similarities. The, the attorney, Atticus Finch versus Tom Radney. I mean, there's just a lot of things that kind of made people think, oh, Harper Lee's going to knock this out of the park because it's, it's very similar in many respects, except it's a real life version of the fictitious story she told in To Kill a Mockingbird. She's going to nail this. Oh, Radney for sure expected to be the hero of this story. Yes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we can all agree on that. And, and, and then for years and years, uh, and this is 77 when all this starts, there's a story in the book 10 years later in 87 where Radney reaches out. I think that Harper Lee had gone to the University of Alabama 
for some sort of event, and Tom's son was there. And he's a university student at this point. And they bump into each other and speak for a few minutes. And when, when little Tom goes home and tells big Tom about it, he writes Harper. And they communicated with each other via uh, correspondence periodically. And he wrote to, to Harper and said, hey, my son said he bumped into you. How you doing? How's the book coming? This is 10 years later. Hey, how's the book coming? Yeah. And she sends him back. You know, not a dismissive letter. It's, hey, how you doing? I can't believe little Tom's all grown up. Wow, you know, we're all, we'll all have grandkids soon and we'll all be gone before you know it. Those kinds of sentiments that people, as, as they get older, share with each other. But still really nothing about the book going on at the time. Um, Harper Lee used as a source a young reporter for the Alexander City Outlook for a period of time. His name was Jim Earnhardt. She reached out. He was 23 years old at the time, but he had covered a lot of the He'd covered the court case. In fact, I think he was in the funeral home mm-hmm, the yes. day when the shooting happened. He had, he had walked outside and heard the shots and ran right back in. Yes. Um, but it became more and more frustrating based on Casey Sepp's research as time went on for Harper Lee because she realized that, and let me get this quote right, there was... Uh, she had to pick out the nut from the shell. That's an expression that we're all familiar with here in the South. Mm-hmm. And at one point she found, and this was in 2009, after she'd had a stroke, she mentioned to someone in a letter that I found a mountain of rumors and a molehill of facts. Mm-hmm. So it, she had given up. And I think, I, I felt like, and this is 2009 when she wrote this in a letter to someone, I think she'd given up on ever trying to turn this into another version of In Cold Blood a long time before she wrote those words, but people still didn't know Harper Lee was so mysterious just as a person and as an author that everybody just suspected that she, you know, she's taking her time and she did have a drinking problem. And there were, I, I can't, I can tell you a little bit about what writer's block is like, but I, not on the scale that I'm sure that people who do this for a living as professionals do, but it's, it's sometimes it's hard and you, you just have to try to not think about it and completely just, leave everything that you're trying to work on out of your mind and hope that one day you bump into a door or somebody elbows you on the bus and it jars something loose and then you can write about it. And I just don't think between all of the facts that she couldn't find uh, and all of the angst that she had about trying to not be a one-hit wonder as an author, that it just sort of snowballed into something that she just could never get her hands around and try to find a way to write about it. And in the last few pages in uh, Sepp's book pretty much uh, confirmed that because after Radney, Tom Radney, Big Tom died in August of 2011, his family found what seemed to be a short chapter, and that's the way that Sepp describes it in the book, a short chapter, like four pages, that Lee had written and sent to Radney, but it was almost like a fictionalized version of the story. Tom Radney wasn't Tom Radney in these four pages. His name had been changed to something else. Uh, It just didn't seem like, in all of these notes, and all of these years, and the transcript, and the $1,000 as hard as she tried to make it work, she just couldn't put it together, and she didn't want to do the one thing, and she mentions this in the book, Sep does, and you asked me this earlier about In Cold Blood. One of the things that I learned when I read this book about In Cold Blood is that there are fictionalized passages in that book. Truman Capote took a lot of 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he, a lot of liberties, a lot of liberties with some of the facts in the book. And if, if you've ever watched the movie Capote or the movie infamous, there are two movies that came out about the same time. Uh, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman won an Oscar for his portrayal of Capote in infamous. And he was in Capote. Do I have it backwards? Okay, he was in Capote. Because I saw, that's okay. the one that I saw, and okay. I really, it was a, it's really it's, good. I'm going to watch him again this weekend. And Toby Jones is the other actor. He was in Insidious. And Harper Lee figures into both of the stories. Uh, Sarah Bullock plays her in one of the movies. And Kathleen, I always forget this lady's name. She's the lady in uh, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Kathleen Keener. She played Nell Lee, Nell Harper Lee, in the other in the other movie. They both came yes, out about the same yes, time. Yes, she does play Harper Lee. That's yes. right. I believe she was in Capote, but I'll check that out. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I, I knew I was going to get those backwards. But anyway, in one of the movies, the Harper Lee character accosts the Capote character and says, you are taking too many liberties. And I'm paraphrasing, but basically she says, you're taking too many liberties with the facts in this story. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think one of the things that Lee didn't want to do if she ever wrote the Reverend was to resort to doing the things that Capote had done to try to move the story along as he had done in cold blood. And I just don't think she could bring herself to write something that wasn't hundred percent fact. And there wasn't enough hundred percent fact to make it a good book. Right. right. So in Capote, it's uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Catherine Keener. Okay. Catherine Keener. And then, so it's Bullock and Toby Jones in, in, uh, infamous insidious infamous, which one you said both, yeah, you've said which, both. which I don't know. Hell I forget. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think she wanted... Hoffman's in Capote. I know that. She wanted to make the definite decision on if this was going to be fiction or nonfiction. She wasn't going to write the line. She wanted to write... She wanted to write a, a nonfiction yes. book, but I think... She didn't want to write a nonfiction novel. Right. Yeah. And I think that part of what is, you know, guessed upon now is that maybe she was turning it into fiction. Yeah. Okay. And she couldn't decide. She couldn't finish. Mm-hmm. So infamous mm-hmm. is the movie, and you have um, Toby Jones as Truman Capote. Okay, and Sandra Bullock as Harper Lee. Okay, yes. all right. I'm not going to try to say it again because I'll just screw it up again. <laughs> but anyway, Hoffman and Keener are in the other one. Yes, that's the, right. that is the film. I, I actually saw that. They're one. both good. I've seen I'm, them both, and they're both good. I need to watch both of them, but yeah. And there's same. there's actually a, a a black and white 1967 movie called. It's called In Cold Blood. It's based on the book itself. And Robert Blake, who ended up being a convicted murderer himself, the uh, Beretta. Anybody remember the show Beretta, the detective show from the 70s? Anyway, Robert Blake yes. starred as one of the uh, convicted or accused killers in the original black and white version. Mm-hmm of the movie. So there's plenty of information. In fact, I found yesterday when I was looking around, I showed you that guy's the thing that I, that found that I found last night. It's called uh, most notorious and it's an hour and a half interview from 2019 with Casey Sepp. And it's a, it's a podcast. Yeah. Most notorious is a podcast. And that was episode. I listened to it today. Episode. <laughs> I tried to write it down too, and I couldn't find it. Out, yeah. Oh, wait, wait. Okay. So it was oh. August the 1st, 2019. Harper Lee and murderer Willie Maxwell with Casey Sepp, a true crime history podcast. It doesn't necessarily have an episode oh, number. I thought it, yeah. Maybe maybe I made that up in my mind and I thought it did. But, well, I when you, find one when you go to your... I know what I was going to say. Your platform that you listen to podcasts and you just search Most Notorious, Casey Sepp. It'll, it'll pop right up. up. Yeah, because that's what oh, I yeah. did. 
Well, and what I was going to say that what I just remember while I was uh, uh, listening to you guys find that there is a four part series, and I don't, I didn't write down if it's on Smithsonian Channel or one of the other history related channels. I think you can download them for two bucks a piece on Amazon, but it's a four part series about the clutter murders and about. Truman Capote coming to town and about the murderers themselves and all of the blowback that happened in the in the years and the decades and even leading up to today that that notorious crime and its results or its consequences in in Kansas in rural Kansas. So is in cold blood did he take too many liberties where you find it in the fiction section or can you find it under I, I think you would find it in the true crime in section true, at your local crime. bookstore. Okay. Yeah, okay. you would. Uh, and, and it's it's a kind of an, a funny story about how he even found out about it because you know, he's living in New York at the time. He's, he's living around Central Park and uptown Manhattan. And it mentions that it was very odd for this strange murder of a family halfway across the country in Kansas to make its way into the New York Times. But it did, and it was just a little small blur, maybe two or three column inches, way back in the back of Section A somewhere. And Capote saw it, and he immediately thought, I want to write a book about that. And so he started packing his bags. Katie, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it is true crime and not in nonfiction novel, so it is. Okay, so not, not enough liberties for it to be considered no, I mean, fiction. I would say that the book is, and I'm just, I'm spitballing. I would say the book is 75, 80% accurate. I mean, it all of the descriptions of what happened in the clutter home that night and the, the events that lead up to it and the events that follow with the, uh, with the local authorities and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation and maybe even the FBI after the cross state lines getting involved, all of that's factual. A lot of, I think what Harper Lee had a problem with was that Truman Capote became attached when they caught the guys, they bring them back to the county seat of whatever, maybe it was right there in Newcomb, Kansas. And he spent time in their jail cells and he interviewed them at length and he became attached to one of them. And Truman Capote was, you know, some people say he was, uh, he was homosexual, some not, but he, the speculation is that he became attached to Perry Smith, I think was the murderer, the two, one of the two guys, and they became attached. Uh, and I don't want to, I don't know if there was ever any physical relationship, but they spent a lot of time together sitting in, in a jail cell alone and talking and they became emotionally attached to each other. And that was where maybe the speculation is that he sort of started to try and apologize for what they had done instead of just walk down the middle of the road. Like we talked about with Sheila Johnson a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, like last week, like a journalist do. is supposed to do at some point it became, it was, it was no longer, it was no longer a factual recount of what happened. It became a, uh, it became a true crime novel. Mm-hmm. And so Harper Lee took issue with that. Supposedly, had, had an issue with and, that. and didn't supposedly didn't want to repeat that when she did the reverend mm-hmm. and subsequently well, and, she could never get to her. Me, it makes perfect sense when she's it. saying she has a mountain of, what was it? Speculation and rumor. A mountain of rumors and a molehill of facts. It's very hard to write a true crime. Yeah, and then you throw voodoo in there with with a molehill. Oh, you of know facts. what? And Casey Sepp never said it. And uh, Kelly, tell me. I mean, Katie, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't think that Casey Sepp ever said it in that podcast that I listened to last night and you listened to today. But it seemed to me like she had this motivation to try and maybe finish the job that Harper Lee didn't. It would be, in a sense. I, I could understand how someone would want to do that. It would be I mean, I can amazing. almost see. What, <laughs> what if I told you, let's, let's go back in time, and I said, hey, I've just finished reading Furious Hours uh, by Harper Lee. 
and you, the three of us have all read this book and throw out the third section. It's a pretty darn good book. And that's kind of, I mean, she's using all of the same facts that Harper Lee had. And one of the accounts in the book is that uh, supposedly at a dinner party, uh, Harper Lee's sister Louise mentioned that I've read it and it's really good or that I've read it and Harper Lee's still working on it. She can't figure out an ending. She's written the whole thing, mm-hmm. but she can't figure out how it ends. Yeah. And and wasn't there a mystery surrounded by where the actual book is, the pages, the Oh, yeah, Harper Lee wrote it, right? with a pen. I and, don't like think... wrote. She didn't type, correct? Did no, she no, no. She no. Pen, well, she handwritten. She would she she would write everything down, mm-hmm. and then she would type it out. And all that they ever found, and this is one of the last sentences in the entire book. Uh, after Harper Lee died in 2016, her estate sent back to the Radney family a leather case filled with a lot of the research that Radney had loaned her 30 years before. And amongst all of the things in there, the newspaper clippings and the transcripts and whatever else it was, there was one single page of typed notes. And in the uh, podcast that you and I Mm -hmm. were talking about, Sep mentions that in the few pages of notes that she found from from the Maxwell case, and if you go to the, I think it's the New York Public Library where all of Truman Capote's notes for In Cold Blood are kept in the archives, there is a very similar pattern that she used to try and separate the information into useful categories. And so it's, it was no, there was no doubt in Sepp's mind that it's exactly what Harper Lee was trying to do, to duplicate what she had done in Kansas, you know, 20 years before, mm-hmm. and just couldn't figure out a way to do it and yeah. make it make sense. Mm-hmm. So as far as we know, there's no transcript of the Reverend, uh, but who knows? I mean, the, the, the Harper Lee estate is locked up. Uh, down there in Monroeville, and we didn't think we were ever going to get a second book until right before she passed away in 2016. Go set a Watchman came out, and y- you will learn some very interesting facts about exactly what that transcript is. I'm not even going to give them away in the show, but it's very interesting to find out exactly what Go Set a Watchman really is, uh, because she wrote it before she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, and that's all I'm going to say about it. If you want to know any more, you got to read the book. And did you read it, Scott? I have not yet read uh, read Go Set a Watchman. Okay, hard, that's that's everybody's homework. We we have two right, deal two books right. that we want you to read. We're going to give you homework mm-hmm. in the summer. Oh, I love it. Summer reading, summer reading, summer reading list from your favorite hometown podcast. I love it. And comment after you do. Mm-hmm. You got to read Furious Hours by Casey yes. Sepp for mm-hmm. sure. Yes. And then you got to read Go Set a Watchman. By Harper Lee. And we don't, we don't have a timeline because we're not school. We're assuming that you've already read To Kill a Mockingbird because if you yeah. haven't, you're going to need are, to do that. We're assuming uh, you went through high school in right? Alabama. I think everyone well, has to read that. And mm-hmm. then go mm-hmm. ahead and put Helter Skelter on there if you really like true crime because that's fascinating. It's six or seven or 800 pages, but it, if you don't know anything about the uh, Manson murders, you'll know everything about them after you read Helter Skelter. Most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Most definitely. And that's all I got, guys. I'm done. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for that, Scott. That was, this was one. This ends our three-part series of the Reverend Willie Maxwell, the lawyer. Tom Tom Radney. Oh, there we go with, uh, (laughs) what was that? Was that another one, Bites the Dust? No, that was Eye of the Tiger. uh, Age of 17. Yeah. yeah. Uh, We don't have the rights to that song. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Don't play that. So that was a that was so a mess up. We learned about the um, Reverend and the mm-hmm. lawyer, the lawyer, and, and now the author Harper Lee. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, listen, I, I've had more fun on this one than I have, and I've had a, a 
a blast on everything that we've done, but I think this was my f- most fun so far. This one was really fun. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. And thank you all for listening and go follow us on Instagram, Facebook. Um, give us a five-star rating and a comment. Uh, read those summer reading books and tell us what you think. Mm-hmm. Please the, do. The day that this one, this episode's dropping, we have a live show tonight. So if you're listening to this on the day that it drops, and we will, it will be live. the exciting conclusion. Are we gonna all do of the, this on the live show, all, all will be revealed. Excellent. I like it. Yep. All right. Um, good night, everybody.